Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Happy New Year and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, it's our 2018 predictions special. The great and the good of the media industry revealing their top trends for the year ahead in TV, radio, print and online. Also on the programme, we discuss the latest pay row at the BBC, the news that Radio 2's new daytime schedule has an actual woman in it, and what the new culture secretary has in his in-tray. Plus, we hold our guests to account for last year's prognostications. Just how accurate were they? Let's find out in today's media podcast. And joining me for the first part of the show is television producer Faraz Osman and BuzzFeed news editor Louise Ridley. Welcome to you both. Hiya. Thank you. Hello. Uh, What were your Christmas and New Year media highlights? Well, I actually heard yourself, Ollie Man on on Magic. Ollie Man on Magic. Mm-hmm. New on Year's New, Eve. New Year's Eve. I was having a very cool New Year's Eve. Yeah, staying in with my husband, <laughs> listening to Magic, and I was like, Ollie. So um, that was an unexpected pleasure. Faraz, how was your Christmas? Yeah, good. I've, I seem to have turned into a royalist, which is mad. But I watched the Queen's Speech, and then watched the Crown, ah. and then it's like you know, suddenly an actress that was in Suits is now going to become part of the royal family, and it seems like that's become the best soap opera, or at least rival rivaling the White House as the uh, as the best soap opera on television right now. That's interesting statement isn't it do you have to be a royalist to watch the crown i also started watching it over christmas for the first time even from the beginning and it's brilliant and it, yeah. it does i wouldn't say it, i'm sort of pretty neutral on the monarchy so i wouldn't say it converts you but it definitely makes me very interested which is going to probably have the same effect in the long run <laughs> it certainly underlines the fact that she's been in it for the long haul yeah, she's committed. Uh, really, she's got a choice. <laughs> <laughs> right, we will welcome your predictions for the year ahead in just a moment. Can you hear I'm excited? This is genuinely this is my favourite episode of the year, the prediction special. Wait. It's partly because I get to say, you were wrong last year. But first, let's cover a couple of the stories that have surfaced this week. And I suppose we better start, really, with Carrie Gracie. Journalist at the BBC, quit her post as China editor, although just in time, apparently, to be a presenter on the Today programme. But it's about pay disparity. So, Louise, what happened? So, Carrie Gracie was the China editor of the BBC and she wrote a really explosive letter, sort of public letter, on Sunday saying that she was resigning her post because she feels she isn't paid equally to the other. There are three other international editors and she was one of them. She says the two women are paid much less than the two men where they do the same work and this is pretty outrageous. So she um, really laid it down and yes, she very much timed it very well because she has been uh, guest presenting the Today programme this week. Yeah, what did you think of the coverage on the actual BBC before we discussed the issue? Because it was quite curious, wasn't well, it, was, it? It was hilarious because because of you know various impartiality rules and things like that it meant that Carrie was hosting the Today programme but couldn't be interviewed while she was the main story on the bulletins (laughs) which created many many hilarious conversations and um, thankfully she has talked about it a lot more on other things but that kind of made a slight mockery of the way they were able to cover themselves being the story but it's very entertaining for everyone. For us the BBC response since... I haven't seen them say, although clearly sources at the BBC have been telling journalists because I've seen this explanation written down, I haven't seen or heard them say that the reason there's a pay disparity between her and Jeremy Bowen and John Sopel is that those two men previously used to present the news and that comes with a higher salary and they have a rule that once you've had a higher salary, your salary doesn't go down. As you're saying this, this might be why they haven't said it. (laughs) But in other words, there is a reason and it's not necessarily about gender and yet the BBC has not come out and defended itself in that way. Why do you think that is? Look, this is a really complicated issue from a number of reasons. One, you've got a big public institution that is... I would argue, conservative in the way that, as you say, it defends itself. So it's it's very risk averse and it doesn't want to say the wrong thing. So it, it decides not to say anything at all. And I think without kind of being 
frivolous about it. In today's media landscape, things move so quickly that people want to demand a response immediately. And I just don't think the BBC is equipped to do that. They want to have the say the right thing in the right way and kind of put an end to the issue, which is what the BBC would have done probably 10, 15 years ago. That's in addition to the fact that the way that the BBC operates with hiring freelancers and having staff and having a, a real scope of how people get paid and, and what they get paid further complicates the issue. So I think that they're like, they want to say something and then find out that somebody is getting paid via a private company an exorbitant amount of money and then suddenly this whole hornet's nest kicks up again. So they've kind of, I guess, decided to just hunker down and hope this blows over, which I'm not sure it will. Bizarrely, and this, this is a terrible thing to say, but I think her issue may become part of a bigger landscape story in the sense that a little bit like the Harvey Weinstein thing. It'll be a thing that kicks off a much bigger conversation around equal pay. Louise, you're nodding. Has it had a kind of Me Too effect in the BuzzFeed offices? Yeah, not in the BuzzFeed offices specifically, but I do a lot of campaigning around sexual harassment in media. And this totally, totally filters into that and adds this really wider kind of gender conversation going on. So I absolutely agree that the Carrie thing will be the beginning of, of a much bigger thing where everyone speaks out about, about pay and, and different things around that. But do you know, I'm not to put you on the spot, but do you know you get paid the same as men doing a similar role at BuzzFeed? I'm pretty confident I do yeah because BuzzFeed has actually made a really big deal focusing on equal pay and and sort of gave everyone a slight pay rise last year with um equaling things up which is great but I think not many media organizations do that at all as we're very aware. I think what does need to happen is that there needs to be much more transparency across the industry about what certain roles get paid and and what your expectations should be. So I was listening to Mariella Fostrop's argument around this and she was saying that one of the things she was saying was about how people find it still a privilege to work for the BBC and therefore sometimes they take lesser pay as as the rest the industry. I imagine, and this is a kind of early prediction, but that's going to start disappearing. Because while we are a generation that really respects the BBC and, and feels it has a real massive value, and we probably would take a pay cut to work there, I think this new this generation... This is not hypothetical up, for me. <laughs> well, this is it. I think this new generation that's coming up is going to go, well, actually, younger services for the BBC were cut, and I don't see the BBC as any other place other than a different workplace. I expect to be paid the same at BuzzFeed as I would at the BBC. And and as that happens, we'll get hopefully more transparency across the whole industry as to what a certain job will pay you across the board. That sounds dangerously like a prediction. And we're not doing predictions Ooh. yet. I want to talk about the shake-up at Radio 2. The word shake-up gets used a lot, doesn't it, whenever they sort of tinker with the radio schedule and there's one new programme. But actually, there's a big fucking shake-up at Radio 2. <laughs> so let's talk about that. The biggest one, I guess, is Joe Wiley's going to be co-presenting Drive with Simon Mayo. Yeah, she can't have her own show. She still has to have a guy sitting next to her to, to do this properly. Mm. And you know what? There's a few things about this. One, this is way, way overdue. And again, it what, comes... What? Putting a woman in prime Just time. to have a shake-up of Radio 2. I think that as Radio 1 of age down, there's been more people like myself who are in their kind of mid-30s, early 30s, <laughs> late 20s, but are now moving to Radio 2. And names like Joe Wiley are names that they recognise from their Radio 1 kind of upbringing, as it were. Mm. So, so this has been long overdue because it does feel like Radio 2 has become more old-fashioned, while Radio 1 has become younger, and this gap needs to be squeezed. Well, except, of course, people who run Absolute and Radio X would say that's the gap that they're mining for commercial purposes very much does not need to be squeezed. You know, they've got Chris Moyles. What commercial radio does is, is very different to the BBC does. I, I always believe this. And, and I think if you're a listener to, the, to BBC Radio, your expectations around news and around features and around what's going on with the culture of the UK is very different to commercial radio, which you expect to hear the hits being played. What Chris has done on, on Radio X certainly hasn't cut through in the same way that it did when he was on Radio 1. And the reason for that is because people wanted to listen to Chris on Radio 1, people want to listen to music on Radio X, is my belief. So, like I said, this has been long overdue. I think what is a shame is the fact that, while I don't disparage in any way what Joe Wiley does, because I think she's an excellent broadcaster, it would be nice to see some new names that weren't just graduates from Radio 1 break into the Radio 2 mould. And, and I think that we need to start seeing people that don't just feel like BBC personnel just simply getting graduations from Radio 1 to Radio 2 and, and onwards. Well, except there are some new names to Radio 2 listeners. I doubt many have heard of OJ Borg doing overnights. Yeah, very, very true. I think I agree with that, that it's good to have a shake-up in all respects. I think they're also sort of parking some really long-running programmes. They say they're resting. I don't know whether that yes, means Yes, I doubt the organist entertains is going to come back in 20 no, years. I, do I, you? I don't think it will. It's been on for 50 years, yeah, I believe. I, have, I think I'm, that's been rested to death I'm, now. I'm a regular listener. What do you think about that, though? Because for the older audience, clearly, I mean, by older, I really mean people in their 80s and 90s now when mm-hmm. you're talking about things like the organist entertains. Radio 2 was a sanctuary for that kind of programming. So was BBC Local Radio, but the Director General has now said, it's okay, you can go for a local audience of any age, they don't have to be old. There actually isn't a BBC provision for older people now. 
I think that's probably a good point. And you do obviously see stations chasing slightly younger audiences than they did before because that is the way the world works. But yeah, that's interesting well, it's question. Because frankly, where those the audience die out, isn't it? That's well, why. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, if I'm but, honest, I don't think the BBC need to do much more to appeal to older audiences. Mm. I think it's got a much, much bigger problem with younger audiences. And when I say younger, I mean under 40. And that's what they need to start realigning themselves to. Because as you say, they are going to be the future licence fee payers. Some of them are licence fee payers now. And, and I believe they're being very, very underserved. Sorry, Louise, I interrupted your analysis. Go on. I was just going to pick up, I think the fact that this reshuffle in terms of putting more female presenters, even if they're with male presenters, is really, really overdue, as we've been saying. And the fact is that I think Joe Wiley's the first female presenter to have a permanent show on Drive Time on Radio 2 for 20 years. This is the beginning of, of what surely should be a bigger change, and especially when you've got a station which does have slightly older audiences listening to it. It's important to have that gender balance, especially at the BBC. I think, for my two pennies worth, because I'm allowed to say it on a podcast, it's not like the BBC, I can say what I actually think, I think they've done a really good job, actually. I think this schedule change is going to make me more likely to listen to Radio 2 whilst keeping their core audience, and I think they've corrected some of the big errors they made last year. Getting rid of overnights and replacing that with a playlist was obviously a bad idea. You need to make sure that the, the music that's being played is right. In the same way that, you know, when Stevie Wonder or Lionel Richie goes on stage at Glastonbury, everyone loses their mind, and they need to kind of pick up some of that magic and allow it to, to permeate between all audiences and not just a, a single homogenous older audience. Let's move on. Following Theresa May's reshuffle this week, we have a new culture secretary as well. See, there's news. There's actual news happening. Uh, Matt Hancock has replaced Karen Bradley. Louise, give us a praise. Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock. Who he? Didn't know too much about him, but he has been working in the digital side of things last two years. He was Minister of State for Digital, which is good. So obviously he knows his stuff already, hopefully. I have an interesting fact about him, although it's possibly not that relevant. He's the first MP to win a horse race in modern times. <laughs> he won a horse race riding on a horse at Newmarket. That's mm-hmm. even rarer than female co-presenters yep. at Drive Time on Radio 2. Yeah, but I can't, I can't lie. I'm not that familiar with him, but he's got the right background but not as well known. So it's going to be an interesting thing to see what what he goes ahead and does. Because it's become the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, hasn't it? So the digital bit, his background Mm. in that, that is quite important, isn't it? Like If you look at big challenges now, net neutrality and getting rural broadband and that stuff, that's probably more important now, isn't it, than ruling over the Murdochs, for example? It is. I feel a bit sorry for Karen because this is going to be a really super exciting year to be that minister. You've got the Winter Olympics coming up, you've got the World Cup coming up, the BBC are launching a massive music project and to not be the uh, the front of the... He's, he's already been tweeting about how much fun he's having with Rita Ora at the London Fashion Week. <laughs> and I think that it's going to be a big year for, for British culture and media. And actually, I think it's going to be a really important year ahead of, please don't fall asleep, but ahead of Brexit, we need to kind of be dialing up what we do as a, as a culture in a much, much better way to kind of fly the flag a, across the world. And, and so he's actually got a much more important job than what it was. It used to be called the Ministry of Fun, didn't it? Kind of back in the day when it first launched. Actually, I believe, I would say this being on the media podcast, but I believe it's probably one of the most important offices that's there at the moment. So I think that there's a real opportunity for him to do some exciting things. And what I hope he doesn't fall into the trap to is basically talking about issues and we'll probably come onto the Channel 4 issue but but talking about things like Channel 4 and moving it outside of London when the industry doesn't want it but it feels like a good political move and I think what we need is a stabilisation of that and hopefully from what I hear about his background he seems to be a good head on those shoulders and, and we should see some some sensible things in, in a year that we can be start celebrating British culture rather than kind of knocking it down. Right I can't sit on it anymore it's predictions time I'm excited. Let's recap what you both said this time last year. Louise, you agreed with your fellow BuzzFeed journalists at the time, James Ball and Scott Bryan, that Rupert Murdoch would acquire Sky in 2017. That was a dead cert, you thought? Well, it hasn't happened, but <laughs> but we had the exciting surprise in December of the possible Disney deal. Mm, so that, the hat. that could mean, in the long run, Rupert Murdoch is more likely to acquire Sky because the Competition and Markets Authority might say that He can because they think it will end up in the hands of Disney, I believe. There's a lot of cross deals and possible things going on here, but we were were incorrect. They can't assess that, can they, independently of the fact that they know that 21st Century Fox has been sold to Disney. It seems so bizarre. They're ruling on whether or not Murdoch can own it, but it's a completely different... It changes what will happen afterwards. But I I believe the CMA decision will come sooner because the Disney deal is huge and will take Take maybe years and may not happen. So who knows what will happen, but it does make it 
slightly more likely, although equally hasn't happened and is uncertain. I will admit that. You also said that it would be a big year for audio 2017. I think that was pretty accurate. Well, you were, yeah, Facebook live audio you, you suggested would yeah. be a thing. So I also talked about Alexa, but <laughs> Facebook, did. if we talk about Facebook live audio, that has not been much of a thing. So it launched and Facebook have been really quiet about it. It doesn't have its own tab in Facebook. They haven't really advertised it or pushed it. So uptake has been pretty low. I didn't even know among it was publishers. There. Yeah, I've, I've barely seen it myself. I know The Economist has tried it out and people have been trying it out. But the problem is it's very difficult to discover. For example, The Economist did it and you sort of do audio posts. It's not that there's some sort of big audio tab like there's a video tab on Facebook. You might just see a post on The Economist that happens to be live audio. Mm. And they tried out doing a broadcast from Nigeria, which is really interesting because one of the advantages of the live audio is that if you're broadcasting from somewhere with bad signal, you might get bad video reception. So using audio is really good in that respect, but they had a very few shares on that post so that, you know, the, the reach is really small, but publishers are still experimenting with it. But yeah, it definitely hasn't taken off. Face- so if you're a Facebook publisher at the moment, you're probably be better off doing a live video with a still image. Exactly. talking over it. Yeah, yeah, very much so, yeah, I would say. It? So that hasn't taken off. But, but Alexa think, did, you're what right. What I think has taken off is, is Alexa. And I speak as someone who is trying out someone else's Alexa in my house at the moment. It's a very interesting experience. I think about eight or nine million people have them and they're definitely taking off. And what's really interesting in terms of a wider media sense is you can do things like play games on them. So we've been playing a game on our Alexa. You talk to it and it starts this sort of travel game that we have. And you, you travel around the world and Alexa talks to you and there's a quiz. So there's a lot more untapped potential there. I think. And, and for obviously for podcasts and audio, it's very easy to listen to them, which is great. Right. So we've established your credentials, Louise. What are your predictions for 2018? So my first one is that I think that AI is going to become a much bigger deal in newsrooms, obviously with digital news in particular being AI. So there's a survey in December which said that 71% of editors and CEOs in this country say they're already experimenting or looking into using AI to choose what people see when they look at apps, they look at digital editions of things. And so Um, that means the way the articles are presented, not the writing of them? It's not the writing of them, it's how you receive the content. So say it's an app, you might get something sent to you with a different frequency at a different time, you might see articles in a different order, you might see a different sort of home page on the app which is personally tailored the times and the sunday times are experimenting with something called they're calling it james it's a recommendation service and they call it james they're trying to build it what it will do is is exactly that is kind of tailor to people's preferences and the the big thing that benefit hopefully advertisers is that the way we measure advertising online is is tending towards engagement a lot more so it's not how many clicks, how many views, it's how long, how much time are people spending with your content. And obviously personalised tailorization absolutely does that. There's an app in China, which is really interesting, that says when you spend 24 hours with it, it will then know exactly what news you want to see and where and where you are and all these kind of freaky things. And it has an average engagement time of 74 minutes over a day. See, it's fascinating. It's such a long time. If your business model is selling eyeballs, then fine, I get why you'd want that. Mm. But if your moral purpose is to bring people the news, it's problematic if that news is personalised, if what all they're interested in is celebrity news, for example. So the big concern with this is also kind of related to that is the idea of filter bubbles. So will you end up only being shown news that you like for some sort of bias reason or because of your political views but all the services kind of working on this are saying and are very much trying to avoid that to show to show you content you'll be interested in but not in a sort of such a narrow-minded closed way that you'll end up having a distorted view of the news obviously that's something we've become really aware of in 2017 yes as the man yes. who leads the free world watches fox news all the time here's <laughs> prediction number two prediction number two is a big acceleration i hope in practical tools to fact check journalism so live fact checking is hopefully actually going to become a thing in 2018 We've been talking about fake news last year and there have been loads of initiatives and ideas of how to try and combat fake news. But Full Fact, which is the fact-checking charity in the UK, is launching two tools this year. One of them is a live fact-checking service so they can hopefully live-check TV, such as Prime Minister's Question Times. So essentially it will be the subtitles on the TV. Those words will be fact-checked against a big database of existing political claims and they'll be able to say live whether things people are saying and ministers are saying are true. And the second tool is called Trends, and that is trying to fact check fake claims that keep coming up again and again and again, which is a big problem because, as we know, it's not so much just one misinformation fact that's a problem, it's the spreading of that. So, this will allow people like Full Fact to sort of compile a database and see why certain claims that aren't quite true keep popping up again and again and again and where. Good prediction mm. so far. Do you have a third for us that isn't like Black Mirror? It's quite bleak, so 
<laughs> not sure it's not like Black Mirror. I think it's going to be a really, really tough year for print again. As mm-hmm. we can imagine, The Sun and The Times just announced big losses. The Sun lost 24 million in the year to July and The Times lost six point something million. And this is because of the decline of print advertising still really hitting them hard, despite things like subscriptions doing okay. And despite digital advertising picking up, it's really not offsetting those losses. And there's also loads of sort of hangover stuff from legal bills from phone hacking and restructuring and redundancy bills. So that's going to Okay, but going. if you're Sorry, using the again, Times Ollie. and the Sun to illustrate mm-hmm. a story about the print, no one's predicting they're going to close in the next year because they are no. strong brands and they are popular. But they so hit very, who, very hard. So who is actually money. at risk, do you think? Obviously, local local print is pretty much almost gone in many, many places, and that will, will continue. And it's such a sad thing. I think we, we already kind of see there's a gaping hole where local newspapers used to be. While there are great blogs and hyper-local sites and things going on, it's not the same in terms of the funding and the structure, that kind of thing. Mm. But I think, you know, you, you can't underestimate the importance of, of big brands being hit hard. Of course, they're not going to close, but it changes what they're able to do. It changes how they're going to invest in investigative journalism and things like that. So sorry for my bleak 2018 outlook. AI is exciting. <laughs> bleak but uh for us hopefully you can uh, cheer us up and we'll see how much you got wrong last year you predicted that we would see the return of nostalgia tv that is kind of right actually isn't it that did happen it's happening a lot in the us and, and a lot of that is because obviously you've got streaming services like netflix it's good pr when you have a name that people recognize and you you kind of stick it into a uh, into a library and, and feel like it's being rebooted the gilmore Go- girls came back dynasty dynasty yes dynasty came back which has just appeared on my planner and i was a bit like wow that's amazing there's been lots of chatter about other bits and pieces that the us are kind of swirling around brands that were, were big in in the kind of 80s and 90s and 2000s and and i think that that's part to do with the fact that you've had a whole generation of commissioners that grew up on that programming and were like that's the best program program of all time let's bring it back but sometimes it doesn't quite land you know x-files has been a real disappointment so it might be more conservative in that space in the uk it wasn't as big as i expected it to be i thought that we would hear conversations about scrappy challenge i think that there was a conversation about treasure hunt or challenge annika that popped up and disappeared there was meant to be a reboot of watership down on the bbc i don't know what happened to that, <laughs> that does that count as a series that could be rebooted i think a so remake, Why not? Surely. It's, it's still a nostalgia thing isn't it it's, it's people it's remember the idea of a reboot well people i think what i mean this by time reboot they've is... got wheels <laughs> <laughs> i think what i mean by reboot is is a thing that you remember f- from your childhood days yeah. being being brought back in, in a new iteration. The things that I think are really fascinating is when you look at what Netflix have done, and it's not just Netflix, but I think it's Warner Brothers as well, around Riverdale and now bringing back Sabrina the Teenage Witch and taking those iconic characters that were seen in one way by an older audience, audience and completely reinventing them for a new audience. So people like me kind of going, oh, I can't believe that you've done that to Jughead and Betty. Mm. But a new audience are kind of going, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened of all time. But th- uh, this is a way of... Of you saying that you were right, but actually, yeah, but that's what there I do. That's my bit... job. <laughs> so <laughs> but always convince you that I'm right. In but some there way. were conversations, as we all know, about the Big Breakfast and the Generation Game and Top of the Pops, yep. and they're not on telly. Top of the Pops is on telly. It's on telly at Christmas. Christmas yeah, and Blind Date is, I guess, but it didn't make such a huge splash as people may have predicted. I think it's done really well for Channel Five, and I think they're really happy with it. They're, they're bringing it back, is what I understand. I think that if you look at something like sounds like Friday night that's meant to be a reinvention of Top of the Pops and bringing back that sort of live music audience spirit so I think that certainly some of the DNA is coming back through but I you know I agree that there's a lot of chatter it makes good headlines but then it kind of fizzles out you also said last year there would be in 2017 more TV commissions targeted at specific demographics based on gender race and so on that was me being a little bit too base. So I, I think that the reality is is that in doing that, sometimes that, that can lead to a massive backlash, particularly if you get it wrong. There were programmes like Boy the Top Knot that I think indexed obviously better with audiences like myself from, from an Asian background. And I think that those commissions were done on that basis. But we've heard lots of stories about how that was a difficult commission to make because people felt that it wasn't broad enough. So I, I probably got that one wrong. But I think that as we move more and more into a streaming service, and a lot of people talk about how they think Netflix is really intelligent in the way that it classifies romantic comedies that feature Tom Hanks in them. You know, you're, you're seeing subgenres of subgenres of subgenres. And, and as Netflix continue to commission hard and, and other platforms like the iPlayer and All4 and ITV Hub also replicate that sort of interface, we will see categorization of programmes always being done back to front and retrofitting them to kind of go, 
The Crown is actually a romantic comedy between Prince Philip and the Queen. And, and I think that that's where we're going to start seeing more targeting of existing content to niche audiences. So what have you got for us this year, Faraz? What are your big predictions for 2018? So I think I think that there are going to be four major stories that are going to happen and people are going to be talking about th- throughout the year. And they're pretty obvious. It's the Disney-Fox deal, which is create earthquakes across the industry. I should caveat that these are predictions that I think will have a massive impact on UK audiences. This yeah. isn't just an international thing. So I think that the Disney-Fox deal will have an impact on UK audiences. Obviously, what's happening with Ian Katz and, and the shake-up at Channel 4 and the, the conversations around regional moves around there is going to have a, a massive impact. What's going going on with Google and Facebook and uh, I was going to say clusterfuck. Am I allowed to say clusterfuck? You just <laughs> said it. <laughs> I just said it. But, but what's the, the nightmare that those two platforms seem to be perpetually in at the moment? And then obviously the, the Me Too and sexual harassment issue is, is going to continue to rumble on and have an impact on things that appear on screen. What I mean by all those things. So the, the Fox and Disney deal for me, it's pretty obvious what that's all about. That's purely about the streaming war between Netflix and what is currently known as Hulu in the US and maybe known as something else in in the future. I think that this year we'll get a very clearer picture of what that will be and how that will play out. And I think that as soon as a deal goes through, the first thing that we'll see is Disney pulling all of their IP off Netflix. So that includes Star Wars, all the Disney content, probably a lot of the ABC content. And that will have probably happen internationally. So do, do you think it will be called Hulu, this new thing? Or do you think they'll rebrand and call it something else? I don't think we'll know this year. I think that they'll kind of start doing a lot of testing this year to see how strong the Disney brand is. There's Disney Life in the UK, which was a soft launch of a, of a streaming product. But I think that the problem with calling at Disney is that people just see cartoons and Cinderella and Aladdin and and don't realise that Marvel and ABC and ESPN are all part of of that group and alongside that how do you fit in The Simpsons into Disney life, it doesn't feel like it's a good fit. And it's arguably a problem for Disney as well as for the public, isn't it? Exactly. And, and also it, what that does is, is it causes problems for Disney as well because some of the more edgy stuff that's been very successful on Netflix can't play as well on something that's, that's Disney branded. So I think that we'll see probably a new brand launch. I, I don't personally... Hulu doesn't have much of a mindshare in the UK and I can't see it being something that, that Disney are, are married to as a streaming platform name. But I don't really think it matters. I think it just comes down to the content and it's going to be a, a big deal. And, and I think that the, the impact for UK audiences in 2018 is going to be the content that you'll see on Netflix and where that disappears to. And, and I think that'll be the first kind of what's going on and where's, where's all my favourite shows and why have they been taken off this service. The counter to that is that Netflix will continue to commission hard to make sure it's got the library to make it work. Um, Facebook and Google are having huge issues around the content that's being on that platform. Obviously, everything that's going on with the Russian hacking stuff and, and how it's starting to influence... Are we still on prediction number one here? No, sorry, this is prediction number two. Prediction number two, so, Facebook and Google so, what? Predict- sorry, Go I should have got you to do that. I want to be able to quote you on this. <laughs> Facebook so, and Google what? So Facebook and Google are going to have to stop what they've done previously, which is just have a platform and allow the users to do whatever it is they want with it. And there's two reasons for that. One, it's diminishing trust in audiences and users of those platforms, where there's lots of very good data about how people don't use Facebook but don't like it. And a lot of that is to do with the fact that it's just people shouting at each other and arguing at each other. And YouTube is having significant problems where there's been horrible stories about YouTubers posting up videos of, of suicides and, and making it and calling it content. And it's just this whole unregulated world is clearly not working for those two platforms. The, the reason that it's going to have an impact is twofold. Firstly, Mark Zuckerberg hilariously has said that his... 2018. He, he does a thing every year, which is a big thing. Last year, he, he went to every city or state in America to to talk to people. This year, it's going to be running Facebook, which I thought is what he was doing anyway. <laughs> what I think Mark Zuckerberg means by "I'm going to go back to Facebook and effectively fix it." Well, he says that, that he, making time on Facebook will be time well spent, is what he said, wasn't it? He, he I think it's just a recognition and an acknowledgement that that platform is not necessarily the humanity-evolving platform that everyone evangelised it to be as part of the internet. And he recognises that it needs to be a positive thing rather than what it's descending into, which is a very negative thing. And all of this is linked to both an altruistic thing where Silicon Valley thinks they can save the world, but I guess more importantly for shareholders is a regulation thing. And they are going to start doing things that, that make sure that they avoid any regulation from the US or the EU quite heavily. So hopefully they'll start correcting some of the issues around that platform. What does that mean for UK audiences? I think that very simply we'll start seeing some very premium products that advertisers can feel comfortable that they advertise against. Facebook Watch is a is, is an obvious one of those. YouTube Red is an obvious one of those. And I well, think... 
very popular. Well, they don't exist in the UK yet. But their no. equivalents on the pop- premium services on those things aren't popular. But I think we'll see more experiments with those two platforms trying to figure out how they can have some sort of... And when I say premium service, I don't just mean a subscription service, which is what YouTube Red is. I think that we'll see things like YouTube Originals, we'll see things that are on that platform that make it feel like it's not a dumpster fire and um, and a shouting match, but, but actually feel like it's got a place for proper, good quality content. And it allows advertisers to start advertising against it in a way that's safe for them and also allows them to kind of move the product into being something that they can control rather than what's happened in in the current climate which is lots of fringe nasty fringe groups controlling the narrative of what those platforms do and and possibly more cleverly personalized as well to go back to louise's thing okay and then a third thing your third prediction my third prediction was around channel four so everyone's going to be talking about channel four because ian katz i think started this week or last week i think he's got his feet under the desk now and everyone's going to be looking very closely as to what the impact of that is going to be. And a reminder for non-regular Sorry, listeners, Ian you Katz used to used, work at Channel 4. I used to work at Channel 4. Ian Katz used to be the editor of Newsnight. Ian Katz used to be the editor, which is more okay. importantly, Ian Katz used to be the editor of Newsnight. And so Newsnight. your analysis is what? My prediction is people are going to be looking very hard at it and it's not going to be an easy transition. And I'm, I'm taking this prediction based on my experience of when I was at Channel 4 and Jay Hunt and um, David Abrahams came in. When things didn't quite go exactly according to plan, the whole industry leapt on them and were tearing strips off of what they were doing and it was like, you know, the channel's going to be a disaster. And eventually they both weathered the storm and got through it. I think the same thing is probably going to happen with Alex Mahan and, and Ian Katz. And in the sense that there are a lot of people that feel that appointment wasn't right for Channel 4. He's going to have to take some risks to put his flag in the sand. One of those risks isn't going to pay off and everyone's going to leap on it, probably at Edinburgh, to go, what's going on and how is this going to work? So we're going to see a kind of a bit of a rerun of what happened with Jay Hunt again. And I hope that Ian, am I allowed to call him Ian? Mr. Katz? I don't know. I haven't <laughs> met him yet. And it's Sir Katz. I'm like, I'm not sure how he likes to be um, uh, addressed quite yet. But what I hope is is that he'll kind of have the resilience to, to weather that storm because Channel 4 does need a bit of a reinvention. As a side note to that, I would also like to say that this whole regional move, Channel 4 will open a new office somewhere outside of London that will feel big and splashy, but will have fairly limited commissioning power. Okay, Faraz, Louise, thank you. I should just say, breaking news, we tweeted earlier at the Media Podcast for people's suggestions as to trends for the year ahead. And uh, none other than Media Pod regular Steve Ackerman has just tweeted back to say his predictions are big name talent will start to turn down radio broadcaster offers in order to create their own podcasts and generate their own revenues. A major brand will fund and develop a Saturday night show and newspapers decline will accelerate as ad money moves. Uh, Steve, we'll have to get you on next year to hold you up against those. More after this. This episode of the Media Podcast was recorded at Run VT in the heart of Soho. Run VT has 15 offline and two online suites, as well as a spectacular bass like grading theatre and a dubbing suite and voiceover booth, which I'm in now. And I love it here. Coffee's good too. But I know what you're thinking. What can I watch that Run VT have been working on recently? Well, how about the greatest celebrity wind-ups ever playing Saturdays, 7pm, Channel 5. Watch that and then edit your next show at RunVT. Go to runvt.tv now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, I'm Jake Cantor. I'm the executive editor at Business Insider. And let's just have a little listen back to some of the predictions I made last year. David Abraham and Jay Hunt... Uh, will leave Channel 4 this year. Wow. Mm. And Jay Hunt is so connected to David that she might either go or go for the chief executive's job herself. I think she... I'm not sure she'll get it. I'm not sure she'll get that job. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, producer Matt forced me to make some wild predictions. They weren't so wild. I'm feeling quite smug about myself. As we know, Jay Hunt left. David Abraham left. We're not entirely sure what David Abraham's getting up to, but we know that Jay Hunt is going to Apple which is a fantastic move. I don't know how I'm going to top that. I will try. So first up, I think we're going to see a large-scale breaking up of the Rupert Murdoch media empire. Now, the interesting thing for the UK is what that will mean for Sky. It will probably mean that the regulatory difficulty around a full-scale takeover from 21st Century Fox is off the table. But... Whether Disney will have the appetite to go for a full takeover is not massively clear. What we do know is that Disney is very well versed in running broadcasting assets. It's got ABC in the US and ownership of Sky would really put it on the map here in the UK. Another prediction is I believe that one of the web giants, be it Facebook, Google, maybe even Amazon or Netflix will pick up some Premier League rights next year. There's going to be a massive auction. I think the Premier League will probably stick with Sky and BT, but there are increased number of games available next next year as part of the latest auction, and I think they'll give a few, a handful, to some of the web giants. So, heady from my success last year, I'm going to go all out and say that Tony Hall will either quit as the Director General of the BBC or signal a timetable for his departure. He's done a remarkable job at the BBC, come in, steady the ship. There's always talk about who is going to be the next Director General of the BBC, and my bet is that it will be a woman and the early frontrunner will be Charlotte Moore. That was Jake Cantor from Business Insider. And joining me now from theweek.co.uk, it is Mediapod stars Rebecca Gilly and Holden Frith. And Holden, you were on our prediction show last year, and I'm going to make you relive the shame of your predictions. You said, publishers and ad blockers war will come to a head and will be resolved by the end of the year. It actually sort of petered out rather than come to a head, didn't it? It petered out a bit, but I'm going to claim a partial victory because Google has taken action or is about to take action. I can't be blamed for the fact they've been a bit slow off the mark. <laughs> but from February the 15th, they are going to incorporate an ad blocker into Chrome. It's not going to block all ads, I'm relieved to say. It's going to block ads that don't meet the standards of the Coalition of Better Ads. So that basically means pop-ups anything that autoplays video and audio, flashing banners, the, the sort of most irritating ads of the, the kind. That acronym you just dropped in, is that a real organisation, the Coalition of Better Ads? It is, That's yes. amazing, I've learned a yeah. thing. Um, what makes a good ad, or a better ad? Well, the idea is that if you can eliminate the most irritating ads, the sort of intrusive ones that get in the way of content, particularly on mobile phones. The ones they sell at a premium. Yep, <laughs> then people won't feel the need to install their own personal ad blockers. This is in Google's interests because it's obviously a big seller of adverts itself. From a publisher's perspective, I have slightly mixed feelings about it. I mean, it should, in theory, mean either no change or a slight improvement for us. The week doesn't sell these most intrusive sorts of ads anyway, so it should tilt the market slightly in our favour. But it does mean even more power is handed over to Google. It can switch off at a stroke a significant stream of revenue for a large number of websites. And so, Rebecca, it would seem to point to the idea that this year we're going to see more of that collaborative branded content being the thing. You know, if, if display ads of any kind are being curbed, then you want more content that's ingrained, don't you? Yeah, and I think that's the way that things are probably going to go. I mean, we've talked 
quite a lot in editorial meetings about the fact that traditional advertising sort of placed on the web page doesn't bring in the kind of money that it used to since the switch to programmatic the revenues have really gone down so publishers and advertisers are looking for other ways to to get their branded message across and I think that intrusive ads have lost so much credibility they've really just become a trope that you know there really does need to be a new path and I think that's probably the form it's going to take. Okay Holden your second prediction last year was that another business model will claim to be the savior of digital journalism that was a fairly non-specific commitment. It was and Um, actually I think it hasn't really happened even in its non-specific form. It was a year where there wasn't really a silver bullet even proposed it seemed more that companies revisited past silver bullets. There was quite a lot of attention given to video, fair amount to podcasts, subscriptions and membership schemes were revisited, even long form kind of got another lease of life. I'm not quite sure whether this is a sign that we've all run out of ideas, or it's actually that we're becoming a bit more mature as an industry and not expecting a single solution. And actually going back to past ideas and looking at how they might have been better implemented, or even just trying out whether the market's now ready for them in a way mm. that it wasn't when they first... And I think subscriptions may well fall into that category. Well, I mean, if you ask Kath Viner, though, she'd say something different, wouldn't she? That may feature in one of my later predictions. Oh, OK. <laughs> because that does seem to be... I mean, The Guardian basically asking their readers for money. It's not a silver bullet for them. They're still massively in debt, but they're less massively in debt than they were. Um, yeah, but I, I think it's kind of a smokescreen. Those kind of donations aren't going to be a sustainable business model, especially lots of people will give five or ten pounds in a kind of fit of virtue but I don't think it's uh, sustainable without some kind of subscription model. Okay and Holden for 2017 you said the issue of fake news will not be resolved. Which now seems almost embarrassingly obvious yeah. to have made that prediction but I don't remember. The issue of fake news will be on Daily Digest from the President it should have been your prediction. I don't remember though it seeming like an embarrassingly obvious prediction to make so I think yeah. it's just a reflection of how much we become saturated with that issue and it feels as if we're further from a solution than than we ever were. Facebook said just before Christmas it's going to stop flagging suspected fake news stories as disputed because it found that actually made people more likely to click on them rather than less. Wow, that is a good little nugget. Well done. Okay, uh, right. Well, having established your credentials, we will return to you for some predictions in just a second. But let's start with Rebecca. What are your three predictions for 2018? Okay, so my first one is that Netflix is going to win a major Oscar. Ooh. At this year's Academy Awards. Why so? Well, so they weren't... They have, have you seen Mudbound? Is that why? <laughs> That's part of my... It is quite good, isn't it? Yes. Uh, well, the thing is, a lot of the films <sighs> that Netflix have produced or distributed have been very good, but they have been overlooked. The Academy has been particularly hostile. The Golden Globes, the Emmys have been a bit more open, probably because streaming has had even more of an impact on our TV viewing than it has on film viewing. The Academy, even up until September, October, has been trying to find ways around find ways to block Netflix from submitting films for Academy Award consideration because they have to play for a certain amount of days Mm. in cinemas. So Netflix just shows them for that minimum amount, which some Academy members claim is cheating. However, I think this year is going to be the year that Netflix becomes impossible to ignore. They did win an Oscar at the last award ceremony, and that was for The White Helmets, which which was a short documentary. But I think feature films are are a much tougher nut to crack. However, they do have two good chances this year. One of them, as you say, is Mudbound. Um, Which is excellent, but not a barrel of laughs. I should underline. No, but that tends to do, you know, it's got Oscar bait written all over it. it, If it weren't for the fact that the Oscars kind of hated it as a principle. And also, First They Killed My Father, which is a film about the Cambodian genocide, another Mm -hmm. rip-roarer that Angelina Jolie has been heavily involved in. Mm -hmm. And a good indication of that is going to be 7th of January is the Golden Globes. Mudbound is up for two awards, Best Supporting Actress for Mary J. Blige and Best Original Song, so that might be an indication. You do wonder as well the extent to which Netflix supporting the film industry might help them soften their attitude within the Academy Awards. Part of the reason as well that the Emmys and Golden Globes are open to it is it is a possibility for streaming revenue if you've made a tv show traditionally if you like for a a cable or a broadcast tv network it then gets a second life on netflix whereas if you make a film you don't want to be telling people to stay at home and watch it you want to tell them to go to the cinemas where the greatest revenue comes yeah exactly and the and the opposition within the academy is a little bit superficial as well there was an article in deadline that pointed out that the vast majority of voting members watch the films on dvd they don't go to cinema and watch them so the idea that it's not the films aren't playing in cinemas enough is really just trying to throw in a you know, fly in the ointment. Yeah, a bit hypocritical almost. Yes, exactly. Like the rest of us, they prefer to watch it at home in their pants. Yes. What else have you got for us then, predictions-wise? Data journalism is going to be 
the big thing of 2018, in my opinion. Basically, we, it ties in with what we were talking about earlier about the fake news. Raw data has become the only thing that's not disputable, except by you know the fringe minority of lunatics. Data journalism has become such an important way of communicating facts to the public in a way that they will not be disputed with any luck. And we've seen Paradise Papers, WikiLeaks, info dumps have become one of the major generators of huge news stories this year. And being able to pass those huge amounts of information and put them across in a way that people understand is a really valuable skill. Birmingham City University has just started offering a master's in data journalism, and it's also become a core component of lots of other digital journalism courses. But it's not as if by just doing a data dump and interpreting it, you are then somehow objective, is it, Holden? I mean, I think about this business about the Queen was investing in um, Bright House. That clearly had a political edge to it, that story. It was saying, can you believe our head of state is investing in a company that essentially exploits poorer people? So it's not just a completely objective analysis that they picked something that would make a juicy headline for the mirror. It isn't. And even if there isn't a deliberate desire to extract a story from data. I think I don't quite share Rebecca's optimism that, that data is sort of neutral in itself. I think it can you be... You don't have a data journalist, I, do you, at the we, week? We don't, yet. no, yet. Rebecca's but if going Rebecca for that is, position, is, yeah. Um, correct, we will, we will be sure. <laughs> um, but no, I think data journalism is just as open to questions about objectivity and reliability as any other form of journalism and in fact it almost gives people another line of attack into it and there's you can take one set of statistics and always find some other set of statistics that proves the opposite your third prediction rebecca my third prediction is that 2018 is going to be the year that podcasts go mainstream now that may i know i had a pound for every time i'd heard that i know i know and obviously to those of us who are you know either doing podcasts or listening to them it may seem like they are already relatively mainstream however i was reading miranda sawyer's review of radio for of 2017 and she was saying this is the first time she's felt like she's picking more podcasts and radio mm. programs and anecdotally this has definitely been the first year i've noticed people asking what podcasts do you listen to in the same way that you might ask someone what bands they listen to or what books they're reading and there's become a real consensus around what are the hip podcasts you know they've not become a niche thing where you have to go on twitter to find other people who listen to them i really think the turning point even though it did start in 2015 was my dad wrote a porno in october of 2017 they published a tie-in book and by that point it had over 90 million downloads Hmm. seven Um, seven years after the uh answer me this spin-off book of course (laughs) just saying Uh, (laughs) enough that the advance was uh, well worth negotiating for (laughs) not a great deal of royalties so I think the the turning point this year is going to be getting the larger companies on board there's been that kind of sort of narrow tranche of companies that have been supporting podcasts so if you listen to podcasts you've heard all about you know audible blue apron the same companies tend to come up over and over again Mm. but getting the big companies involved is going to mean getting big budgets which is going to mean that independent podcasts uh, would be able to compete with radio especially things like drama and investigative that is a shift that i've noticed actually i mean first direct have just been sponsoring answer me this which is something that would have been completely incomprehensible seven years ago and it's very valuable um there was an interview with one of the managers of audio beam who's saying that they ran a study that found that 65% of people who listened to podcasts went on to try one of the trials of the services. But so it does have much higher engagement than other forms of advertising. You mentioned My Dad Wrote Porno and Holden, you know, if that is the turning point, I mean, nothing could be more millennial than that show, then it hasn't gone mainstream, has it? Surely it only really properly, properly goes mainstream when the biggest podcast is Steve Wright's Love Songs. The, it, a step in that direction, I think, which shows it is becoming more mainstream, is the BBC is is frantically flogging all of its podcasts, and you can't really listen to a, a Radio Four program now without out being urged to, to download the podcast for extra bits and bobs. May I recommend the BBC Radio Four Forethought podcast, which includes an extra six and a half minutes volume man. <laughs> uh, Holden, what are your three predictions for the year? I think that after 2017 was the year of the pivot to video, in 2018 we're going to see a pivot away from video as publishers realise that it's very expensive, it's hard to do well, particularly if you don't have a background in making videos. It's a really inefficient way of transmitting information, which is 
at the end of the day, what digital news is all about. The pressure has come because advertising rates are higher for video than they are for display ads, for some of the reasons we've been talking about. But that's partly because of scarcity of video. And as soon as the number increases, that scarcity disappears. And so revenues drop, publishers have to make more in order to maintain the same cost. And because they're expensive, that just doesn't make economic sense. So I think that, you know, the big investment we've seen is, is has almost been self-defeating and we'll, we'll see a move away from that. Good one. I think it's also uh, becoming widely understood that the statistics on Facebook video are slightly exaggerated. Yes. Yeah. Uh, second prediction for the year. I think we'll see a serious attempt in the EU and the US to regulate Twitter and Facebook. The EU is a fairly safe bet. We've already seen rules coming into effect on the 1st of January in Germany that require Twitter to take down any accounts that are breaking German law. I'd be surprised if there wasn't an EU level attempt to do something similar. The US has until now been very reluctant to regulate social media companies or any kind of technology company. But as the extent of Russian attempts to interfere with the 2016 election become clear, there seems to be more willingness from both Republicans and Democrats to enact some kind of regulation there. And your third prediction for the year? And my third prediction is that The Guardian will introduce some form of paywall by the end of the year. Wow. Which it will pretend is not a paywall. Okay, How's, how's that going to look to the user then? How do you make that look I, friendly? And I pick? think they will, they will, they'll probably end up introducing some new service or right. new section. Guardian Premium. Exactly. And mm. they'll say that this is not them putting existing content behind a paywall. It's a new, new service that you can pay extra for. The end result will be the same. Now, your background is, we've talked about this on the podcast before, you used to be at the Times' yes. online edition, which has proved to be a relative success. Hasn't yes. it? it is profitable charging yeah. people to read the Times online. So is that ultimately what is going to win out? Murdoch was right. I think he was more right than most people thought he was at the time. I think it's taken some time for him to become right. Um, (laughs) He hasn't got much time left. (laughs) Just Um, in the nick of time. (laughs) And, you know, The Guardian does make this step. I expect it would be much more like the Telegraph premium, sort of some in, some out, rather than the Times all or nothing approach. But one of the advantages of having a subscription model is not just the regular stream of money you get in rather than the occasional donations that you might be able to solicit but actually you end up with much more engaged readers who become more valuable to advertisers and also to other revenue streams you might be able to set up such as reader events e-commerce travel offers those sorts of things excellent i will be holding you to these predictions this time next year and you as well rebecca you don't escape just because this is your first prediction show you're booked in Perfect. I've cleared a spot in the diary. <laughs> Thank you very much to Rebecca Gilly and Holden Frith. If you enjoyed hearing the three of us talk, and Rebecca's right, this is the year of podcast going mainstream, then do check out The Week Unwrapped, which is the show that we make each week with the MediaPod producer, Matt Hill, which you can find on your podcast app of choice. Well, that is it for our show for today. My thanks to Rebecca Gilly, Holden Frith, Jake Cantor, Louise Ridley and Faraz Osman. You can hear all our predictions episodes from 2015 to the present day by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. And if I may make a prediction, it's that we will continue a fourth year of making this show independently, but we do need your help. Take out a voluntary subscription. Just a fiver a month from each of you can keep us going this year. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and give as generously as you can. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.